I'm on right now. I don't believe you. That's not six. One plus two plus two plus one. You really are crazy. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Me? No, come on. Don't be crazy. Welcome to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. We are a movie podcast where we delve into the world of cinema and explore what makes certain films good or bad. I'm your host, Zach Rancourt, and every week I bring together other film enthusiasts to analyze, discuss, and dissect some of the most popular and critically acclaimed movies of all time. Whether you're a film buff or just a casual moviegoer, our show is sure to provide you with a fresh perspective and thought-provoking insight into the world of cinema. So grab your popcorn, sit back, and join us as we explore the art of filmmaking and discover what truly makes a movie great. All that I ask my guests is don't be crazy. And I have the honored and distinguished uh, privilege to introduce two very wonderful gentlemen. They are part of the top five podcast, but more importantly, they are the top five friends in my life. Some of the top five friends Mm -hmm. in in a subset of other top five groups. So (laughs) and that is uh, Tom Lockhart and Eric Shane. Uh, You guys, thanks so much for being here. Who, who, Who wants to talk first? Eric, go ahead. Yeah, that's usually the way it works out. But yeah, I don't. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having us, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. You guys want to introduce yourself? Well, I feel like we've done it before. I'd say uh, I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm just going to say go back and listen to our episode and don't be crazy <laughs> of uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I feel like we had a really good one on that one. That was good. Uh, yeah. What else? What else? Did we did um, Rambo. Chucky. We did Rambo. Well, Rambo and Chucky. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not Chucky. It's Child's Child Play. Play. Yeah, it's Child's Chucky. Play. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We I talked. Yes. I, well, I watched all of them for that, so it's just Chucky to me. I just eh, I watch them all. And you watch all the Rambos, too, right? That I did. Those are good. I like those a I, lot. I did not watch all the movies in this one. Yeah, you know, that's okay, because there's only one, so. Yeah. <laughs> that there's works. only one so far. So far, exactly. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and that movie, of course, the film we are going to be discussing today is 1988's Beetlejuice. Don't say that name three times, or else that maniac will show up and be all crazy at your house. It was directed by Tim Burton. He is famous for Batman, 1989, Edward Scissorhands, Corpse Bride, A Nightmare Before Christmas, and Sweeney Todd, just to name a few. It was written by Michael McDowell, Larry Wilson, and Warren Scarin. Stars uh, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, Jeffrey Jones, and Glenn Sheddix. Uh, critical reception. IMDb, this movie did really well. 7.5 out of 10. So most people loved this movie on IMDb. And on Rotten Tomatoes, critics uh, gave it an 86% for the tomato meter and an 82% for the audience score. So... People love Beetlejuice. Um, kind of perplexing to me, but people love Beetlejuice. It is streaming and available right now, uh, the airing of this podcast, on Hulu. So where did you guys watch it? Hulu. Also Hulu. Okay. Do yeah. you do either of you own it? No. I, I have it somewhere. <laughs> on DVD? On VHS? Uh, DVD, maybe Blu-ray. I'm not sure, but mm. definitely one of the two. Hope you save your receipt, Tom. It's probably... Probably expired by now, but that's okay. (laughs) So the uh, film had an estimated budget of $15 million, which is pretty low considering what type of movie this was and how popular it was. And in the U.S. and Canada, it grossed about $74.6 million, which is very successful. Opening weekend was on April 3rd, 1988. It made $8 million, so half of its budget. 
And then worldwide, it grossed, and this is a rough estimate, 74714720000 So they clearly didn't have all of the worldwide budget, seeing as it only made 100000 more than the U.S. and Canada. But I digress. Um, f- a few fun facts. There are a ton of awesome act- uh, trivia p- tidbits to this movie, I should say. Uh, but these are just a few that I plucked. So Mike, this is Michael Keaton's favorite film of his own. So all of the movies that Michael Keaton has been in, he loves Beetlejuice the most, which is fascinating to me because Michael Keaton playing the titular Beetlejuice actually only appears in the movie for 14 and a half minutes of film time, which is crazy when you think about it. <laughs> this this hour and a half long movie and he's in it for 15, almost 15 minutes. It's weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a little weird. <laughs> it, I'm like, I'm like, when is the Beetlejuice going to show up? Who's this Beetlegeist person? So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, oh, this one's really fun. This film was the first DVD sent out by Netflix in 1998. That's pretty interesting because they actually just stopped sending DVDs, I think, like last month. Um, yeah. So to come full circle, the very first DVDs ever sent out by Netflix was Beetlejuice. Fascinating. That is fascinating. I miss I miss the three at a time deal. Uh, it was oh, it was always cool so to good. go check your mail and you're like sweet a new DVD. But yeah, um, and then finally the visual effects budget was ju- uh, just one million dollars, a major factor in Tim Burton deciding to make the effects look as tacky and B movie as possible. And did you guys notice that that this looked very very Jason and the Argonauts like something that was probably straight from the '60s? Yeah, I took that as just. Eh, Tim Burton, I figured. Yeah, that eh, sounds about That's right. That's pretty like, much the way I figured it. Yeah, and it was weird because when I was watching it, you know, I'm like, man, these these effects suck. And I understand that that's more of like what Tim Burton's style is, but we're talking about the guy that a year later does Batman, and it's this giant spectacle, and those effects look way better. But him doing it on purpose is is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, the budget itself was so you know that was a fifteenth of the budget basically him treating it like that actually gives it more gives it strength so i actually really applaud that that they kind of went with the campiness of beetlejuice so like the snake that appears right and has beetlejuice's head i'm like this is cheesy as hell but it really does make sense when you think about it yeah and we're gonna get into that i definitely noticed that and bringing that along with a couple of my points we'll get more into that as we get into it but yeah that's definitely that's an important thing to note that he did that on purpose. It wasn't because he didn't know how to do something better that he, like he did it on purpose. It thematically fit the yeah. movie and what he was doing. So yeah, the rhyme and the reason. Well, here's a synopsis for anyone who has not seen Beetlejuice. If you don't want to listen to this spoiler filled synopsis, skip ahead about five minutes. In okay, winter, I'll see you guys in five minutes. <laughs> in Winter River, Connecticut, Barbara and Adam Matlin, uh, wait, Maitland? Yeah, Barbara and Adam Maitland decide to spend their vacation decorating their idyllic country home. As they're driving home from a trip to town, Barbara swerves to avoid a dog and a car plunges into the river. After returning home, she and Adam notice they now lack reflections and find a handbook for the recently deceased. They begin to suspend they did not survive survive the car accident. When Adam attempts to leave the house, he ends up in a strange and otherworldly desert-like landscape populated by enormous sandworms. Shout out to Dune. The encounter lasts only a few seconds for him, but after being rescued by Barbara, she claims that he was gone for two hours. The house is sold, and the new owners, the Dietz family, arrive from the New York City. Charles Dietz is a former real estate developer. His second wife, Delia, is a self-proclaimed sculptor, and his teenage goth daughter, Lydia, from his first marriage, is an aspiring photographer. 
Under the guidance of, inter- of interior designer Otho, the family transforms the house into a pastel-toned work of postmodern art. Consulting the handbook, the Maitlands travel to an otherworldly waiting room populated by other distressed souls where they discover the afterlife structured according to a complex bureaucracy involving vouchers and caseworkers. The Maitlands caseworker Juno informs them they must remain in the house for the next 125 years on the pain of a dire fate. If they want the Dietzes out of the house, it is up for the Maitlands to scare them away. Although Adam and Barbara remain invisible to Charles and Delia, Lydia can see the ghost couple and befriends them. Against Juno's advice, the Maitlands contact the miscreant Beetlejuice, Juno's former assistant and now freelance bio-exorcist, to scare away the Dietzes. However, Beetlejuice quickly offends the Maitlands with his crude and morbid demeanor. They reconsider hiring him, though too late to stop him from wreaking havoc on the Dietzes. The smell... The the small town's charm and the supernatural events inspired Charles to pitch his boss, Maxie Dean, on transforming the town into a tourist hotspot. But Maxie wants proof of the ghosts. Using the handbook for the recently deceased, Otho conducts what he thinks is a seance and summons Adam and Barbara using their wedding clothes. But they begin to age and decay as Otho had unwittingly performed an exorcism instead. Horrified, Lydia summons Beetlejuice for help, but he will only help her on the condition that she marries him, enabling him to freely cause chaos in the mortal world. He saves the Maitlands and disposes of Maxie, his wife, and Otho, then prepares a wedding before a ghastly minister. The Maitlands intervene before the ceremony is completed, with Barbara riding a sandworm through the house to devour Beetlejuice. Finally, the Dietzes and Maitland agree to live in harmony within the house. Beetlejuice is stuck in the afterlife waiting room. He steals a number ticket from a witch doctor who, doctor who shrinks his head in return. Crazy ass plot summary, but that is Beetlejuice, 1988. Um, this one was interesting. I thought about doing this movie a long time ago for the Don't Be Crazy podcast, and I'm kind of glad I waited because I don't get it. <laughs> and I think I think we're gonna we're gonna have to really discuss that. And I mean, I'm. I get it, but I also don't get it at the same time. You know, sure. t- Tim Burton's just one of those people. He has this really unique style, this iconic style, and it just oozes out of every film that he makes. It's dark, twisty, it's fun, it's gothic, and most of the times it's animated or he does a lot of stop animation. Um, so there's so many adjectives that you could use for Tim Burton, who is a good filmmaker, don't get me wrong. Right. But I will ask this, like, why is Tim Burton so odd and what is his draw for everybody? Well, I said I, 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 could, I think I could take a whack at that if uh, whack away. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, he is a bit of an odd duck, isn't he? He's a uh, but he's always been an artsy guy. And, you know, I, I, I looked up did some research into into the man himself and he drew, he painted as a kid. That's what he watched a bunch of movies. That's how he interpreted the world around him. And that's what he did for fun. Uh, he was mostly an introverted kid. He did play some water polo, but he he was mostly an introverted kid. And he was making those stop motion animated films in his backyard when he was like 11 or 12. You know, so that's what he did for fun. And like his dad is was the former jock. His dad was a minor league ball player. Uh, his yeah, and at some point his mom actually owned like a cat themed gift shop. So maybe the weird <laughs> comes from mom. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, well, I saw a picture of him that his mom made a Halloween costume where he was a skeleton, and it looked like his art style. So I think he does get a lot of it from his mom. Probably, but you know, we we don't want to get too deep into the psycho analysis here, but. <laughs> Maybe he did. I don't know. But um, 
his two biggest influences apparently was Dr. Seuss and Roald Dahl. Now, oh, that makes of, a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, both of those men wrote children's stories. Uh, but Roald Dahl in particular had a thread of gothic art in his works. Now, he wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He wrote James and the Giant Peach, of which Tim Burton later actually made the movie for it. Um, fantastic because Mr. Fox, the witches, a bunch of others. Um, now, he, before he was a best-selling children's author, Roald Dahl was an ace fighter pilot in World War II. Oh, wow. And yeah, yeah, he was an ace fighter pilot. And that obviously that affected a lot of his writing. Dark humor, irony, war is a theme and its effect on characters. These all interlaced throughout all of his children's stories. And Tim Burton grew up as an introspective kid in Burbank in the 60s and 70s at the height of the hippie movement and the Vietnam War. So, yeah, I think he was sensitive to those themes. I think it affected his storytelling style. I could see that. I mean, and that would make sense. And it seems to to leak out in certain films because, you know, looking at his resume, it's it's so impressive. He has some of my, my more, you know, favorite low-key films or low-key favorite films, I should say, like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Obviously, Batman, I'm a diehard Batman fan, so seeing 89 Batman and Batman Returns is just mm-hmm. fantastic. I love Mars Attacks. I think that's a great movie. Big Fish is such an underrated gem, and it makes me cry mm-hmm. every time. It's just wonderful, right? He has a lot of of good, but he he for every for every good in my opinion, then you get like an Edward Scissorhands or a Sweeney Todd, and they're just freaking weird. And the gothic tones and and creepy imagery, it just has never sat well with me. And I just think of him as a disturbed guy. And I know that you guys both like A Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. never been one of my favorite movies for the holidays. So I'm like. Am I the problem? But no, no, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a problem. It's it's a it's a question of taste and it's not really to your taste. That's fine. And I don't want to bash him and say that he's because he has the clout. Like you put Tim Burton in front of something like he recently did the Wednesday series. And if you just put directed by Tim Burton, it's like, oh, sweet. I got to check it out just because I kind of know what I'm getting into. Um, But I don't know, Tom, what do you think about that? Um, well, I agree that he's very hit or miss. I think he's a much better when he's not going full Tim Burton. Uh, cause sometimes he just goes Tim Burton to the wall and like Charlie and the chocolate factory or a lot of his newer ones where he's just like, it's all that style. I think it's better when he kind of puts it with normal, like most of this movie is like normal stuff. And then that stuff kind of rolls in when it deals with like the dead. And he does a lot better when he's not being Tim Burton 24 <laughs> seven. That's what I think. Uh, yeah. Except for there are some movies like Nightmare for Christmas for the most part, that's all Tim Burton besides his little venture into Christmas land. Uh, so there's rare exceptions to that rule, but uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's I I think that, yeah, him being odd is definitely a director trademark. But but what Eric was saying too, given more insight to his backstory, that would prove that makes more sense. And that that kind of gives me more um, of a of a groundwork for who this guy is, uh, you know, and, and just his his art deco style and whatever it may be. I don't think that's even the right term, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. He's just never really been one of my favorite directors, but I do like a lot of his movies, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's just, for some reason, Beetlejuice was, it never really sat with me and it's just so freaking odd. And I, 
I, I, I don't get it at times. And I'm like, what? What's going on? <laughs> it's you. It's 100 percent you. It's your it, fault. It, it probably Ugh. is. But You're the worst, e- even <laughs> the though real film enthusiasts get him. OK, <laughs> even even though I, even though I have issues with Tim Burton and some of his his style and his work, um, you know, just as mise en scene in general, um, I think one unanimous thing we can all really agree on is he's tied to the waist with composer Danny Elfman. And it's for a good reason. Danny Elfman's just iconic composer uh, whose music can be found in some of the greatest pieces of film and TV ever. Ta- looking at you, The Simpsons. Um, and, and when I think of Tim Burton, I'm always like, sweet, there's going to be Danny Elfman who's who's on the score. Right. So let's just for a second imagine a Beetlejuice film, however, where Danny is not the composer. How drastically different would Beetlejuice be if Danny Elfman wasn't there? And then on top of that, who do you think is a worthy composer that could fill in? Uh, I'm going to go with I can't imagine that and no one like it just <laughs> like like I was trying to think about it. It was like, no, this would be a totally different movie without his music. Like his music is very distinct. There's there's three composers where it's like if they're not there, we shouldn't be making this movie. Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer and uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, Jonathan Williams. Uh, is that the guy who does Star yeah. Wars? And stuff? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, John Williams. Sure. But yeah, and it's just like if they're not doing those movies, like I can't imagine anyone else doing it. Like I would love to see like somebody score any of those composers movies in a different way and somehow try to make it good because I don't see it happening at all. (laughs) Well, it's tough. I mean, there's so many good, (laughs) you know, composers out there, too. And to try to basically like so Ludwig Gorenson, right? Who did Black Panther and did Black Panther 2 and he works with Ryan Coogler a lot. He did Creed. That guy is, I mean, he's already multi Oscar winning composer. He's like the next John Williams basically too, but with a different style. Then yeah, you're saying Hans Zimmer, uh, Sir, or, um, oh my God, uh, Ennio Morricone who passed away a few years ago. Very, very famous for any Westerns, any Sergio Leone Western. Um, it just goes hand in hand. But I think Elfman, the, the beauty of it is how fast paced it is and how yeah. the pitch changes so much. Um, and it feels like adventure music. So you know, like that kind of stuff. And I feel like I'm going on a journey. And so when I like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, a lot of that is and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. So that's or like Men in Black. Elfman did Men in Black and that is awesome the the theme for that so yeah it, it, it was like the opening credits for this where it's just the camera going over a model city yeah and i'm like excited with just like oh we're going through the streets of a model and it's just like oh this is so exciting danny hilfman's got me hyped and then that stupid little yeah. spider crawls on top and i'm like, like oh that. god yeah, no. i don't like that i don't like that <laughs> well, he he is the partnership is perfect it's perfect for their their styles they juxtapose so because like you said danny hilfman's got this high you know energy yay sort of peppy almost <laughs> to him but yeah. Tim Burton's got these really dark, you know, aesthetics going to it. So I, it's a wonderful juxtaposition. But you guys mentioned uh, Hans Zimmer a couple times. That's actually mm-hmm. who I was thinking mm-hmm. would be. That's who I came. I was like, because he has these big, massively impactful themes in his scores that I just I mean, I absolutely love. I, I know you guys do, too. So he's perfect for a really all kinds of huge blockbuster movies like The Rock or Inception or mm-hmm. Gladiator or um, yeah <laughs> just a loud or, noise yeah. <laughs> yeah any of the batmans oh, any God, of the yeah. batmans or, or or video games like call of duty modern warfare or 
anything like that. But he also did Lion King. So Lion King, you know, it's got that just can't wait to be king. You know, you can get that. Mm -hmm. pep. He can he can do that. He absolutely can do that. But can you imagine like that climactic wedding scene set to a Hans Zimmer score? Like, <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of epic. This I movie. Like... Would, yeah, this movie would be drastically different if you had a Hans Zimmer score in it. And Beetlejuice <laughs> would just be like, bomb, bomb. Bomb. But check this out. Like, but, like oh god. But, but after it's important to know that after Nightmare, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman had a little bit of a conflict and they were just mm -hmm. like they needed a little bit of creative space for a while. Mm -hmm. So the uh the scoring of Ed Wood was done by Howard Shore. And that's you know, obviously Lord of the Rings fame and just like yeah, yeah Howard Shore beautiful, but to do this movie, that might be Imagine. That would be very um, whimsical. That would be odd, <laughs> different. I mean, I think concerning hobbits, that's immediately where my mind yes. goes for Howard Shore. Me too. And obviously he's such, you know, gifted and he he would have made it fit. It's just, boy, that's an odd pairing. Seems like an odd pairing. It it really is. And there's so many great composers out there. So it is, it's, it's hard to say. It would be fun to see a different style in this movie. But I think that Danny Elfman is perfect in, in that sense. He also created, you know, one of the most iconic Batman themes ever. That dun, 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 dun. And yeah. I like, I mean, that spun off to one of my favorite shows of all time, Batman, the animated series where they used it. Yes. And I remember being a kid and just getting so giddy as soon as you'd hear that start up and I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> um, and I still get giddy. So he's he's responsible for one of the most formative like songs in my life. Uh, Danny Elfman is so I mean, I can't see anybody else doing this. I just I, I think that's the probably one of the saving graces for this movie is the score is so freaking good. Um, and like, I mean, Michael Keaton's fantastic, obviously, he's yeah, juice. But that aside, it just again, this movie didn't really hit for me, but it is fascinating the power of music. Um, and we we think of that like so you guys are Nolan fans, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And so seeing Oppenheimer, I'm, I'm super pumped to see that because I'm going to see it in IMAX and I, I'm ready for my ears to explode and my face to explode because <laughs> Zimmer's going to be just toning it up to an uh, 11 on that movie. Yeah. No, this time he's going to be real subtle about it. He's just going to be just a single violin. <laughs> I made I made a joke today. I was like, yo, that movie's going to be the bomb. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> the movie's a the, the bomb, yo. So, I don't know. Get um, out yeah. of here. Go to bed, sir. I can't. It's too early. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of my childhood, this movie actually terrified me as a kid. The visuals, I mean, I would say that they're things of nightmares. Those giant sandworms, uh, the faces that they do when Alec Baldwin does the big nose thing. Dude, it's pretty freaking scary. And I find it perplexing that this movie is beloved by so many people our age. You know, seeing as we were kids in 1988. Granted, you guys were a bit older than me, but still, we were kids in 1988. So, like, what did you guys think of Beetlejuice when you were kids? And then, furthermore, did you have any movies, books, or TV shows that scared you? Well, Beetlejuice creeped me out as a kid. I did not like it until I became an adult. And I think, I mean, I don't know. It's it's perfect that it creeped me out. I mean, that that's it's a ghost story. That's what it's supposed to do. Ghosts are terrifying to kids. It's just that, you know, I didn't appreciate it as a kid. Some kids appreciate it right away. Uh, you see them when I'm working at the haunt in October. Some kids are just geeked out. Yeah, this is their <laughs> jam. And some, you know, they got to build up to it. It takes a little bit. Um, we talked about this actually on a top five podcast episode, but like I, I didn't really dig the scary movies a lot when I was a kid. I watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? 
Uh, I read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Always iconic, always good stuff. But And th- those impacted me a lot. But that was plenty for me. I wasn't one of those kids who was super into that kind of thing. So I, I don't know if people our age, if they're responding to Beetlejuice out of like love, original love for it in the late 80s. I think some of it is nostalgia. And yeah. some of it is that they've gone back and watched it. Because when you get into your teenage years, that's when, you know, it sort of unlocks for a lot of people their love of horror or the weird or the difference. And I think maybe they went back and saw it at that point in time. I don't know how many of them actually liked it as little kids. In fact, I think Tim Burton. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I know Tim Burton got fired from Disney. Like he was originally a Disney artist. Did you know that he was um, hired? I think back in the, the annals of my mind, I knew that he was yeah. hired out of college as a Disney artist. And he, you know, the, none of his stuff, they didn't take any of his storyboarding to the main films he helps but they didn't take any of his ideas but they did uh eventually let him make frankenweenie and yeah. they, they fired him for frankenweenie <laughs> because it did wow. not it did not fit the theme of disney it did not he did not have the clout to make that movie now <laughs> but, he laughing. <laughs> but he but he did and uh it's just it did not fit their theme it did not they said it was this is too scary a movie for children and that you put disney's name on this you're out. So, and uh, honestly, I don't disagree with that decision, but that's more on that later. Interesting. Tom, what Uh, about you? I loved Beetlejuice as a kid. I was not scared by it at all. Maybe I just wasn't like connecting to the whole, Oh, these are dead people. And like, there's a suicidal girl in it. Like, like, Winona Ryder is like suicidal, like writes a suicide note in it. I didn't yeah. remember that at all. That was until pretty I intense. It's yeah. just like, wait, yeah. wait a second. This is kind of a children's movie. And she's writing a suicide note right now and telling people, the dead people, I want to be dead. And it's just like, that's super dark. And I never realized that as a kid. I was just like, ah, Beetlejuice, goofy for his, his 14 minutes that he's in here. So I, I, I was really fine with it. Like I wasn't scared, but I, I didn't get scared by a lot of things. Um, I do remember. Um, I don't know if Eric was on my peewee football team that this happened on, but we had a sleepover at one of the kids house and his parents were perfectly fine with us watching HBO. Like we were watching tales from the crypt. And I remember the specific episode It's called Only Skin Deep, and it has a woman with a creepy mask. If you search Only Skin Deep Molly, you can look at her, and that creeped the shit out of me as a kid. (laughs) I was terrified that entire night. I was the last kid to go to sleep because I was just like, it freaked me out. (laughs) I did not like it, and I was scared for a long time just on that, oh, so creepy. When I look at it still, I looked it up and I was like, oh, no, it's still terrible. Oh. <laughs> still got the heebie-jeebies. It's, well, it was so interesting, though, because, I, I mean, us as millennials, man, there were some pretty disturbing, you know, quote unquote, kids movies. And looking at like Secret of Nim, that movie is cool now as we're adults, right? I think. But there were still some visual image, imagery in it that you were like, oh, God, this is weird. Same thing with Willow. Willow had some moments when some of the makeup looked really scary. Uh, the bad guy in that uh, is pretty scary. Legend. Legend was a movie I never really got, but people loved it. Same thing with Labyrinth. People love Labyrinth, but it was always just so terrifying to me. The Witches, that movie like with the rat oh, tail, yeah. when the rat tail gets cut off, I hate that. Um, but, but even like movies like Homeward Bound, which don't have bad imagery, it's just like, wait, are they all dead? 
And I'm like, why did I just yeah. watch this movie? And it just fucked me up. And I'm like five years old. <laughs> so, uh, oh, Dark Crystal as well. That was another one, too, I wrote down. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, how, if you guys are fans of that. I I hated it. Yeah. it. It always scared me. I know they rebooted it, but I still was like, no, I'm good. That's nightmare fuel. <laughs> also terrifying. Yeah. Henson is uh, his, his scary guy. <laughs> That's his Tim Burton scary. moment. Yeah. That's his Tim Burton moment. Yeah. Um, I was just always terrified of that kind of stuff. And, and I don't know what it was, but... I just never became a fan later on in life. And I, I felt like I was just I missed the boat on it um, where people were like, oh, I love this so much. And they have, you know, a labyrinth pin or they have the making of legend. And I'm just like, I'm good without it. Right. Tim Curry as the devil's great. But otherwise, I'm, I'm fine. Um, but I do want to continue the discussion on the tone of Beetlejuice. So it's a dark comedy, uh, technically, but it has some deadly undertones like uh, Tom was saying about suicide and uh, just, I mean, how people were dead in it in general. Uh, A lot of childish humor throughout it as well. Um, And then at times, heavier subject matter. So basically, I guess with all that being said, like, I know we've alluded to this, but who is this movie for? Is it is it a kid's movie? Is it a teenager (laughs) movie? Is it just like a fuck all and do whatever you want movie? Like, who who is this for? (laughs) that's a tough one. Um, I, I think it's for everyone dot, dot, dot. As long as you're cool with having the death talk with your kid, like maybe if they ask or if you're like, Oh, I should tell them like, this is a little too much for them. Maybe, but I think anyone can watch it. Cause as I said, I thought it was great, like as a kid and didn't catch on to all the dark stuff as much. So maybe it'll go over kids heads. Uh, So I'm going to leave parenting up to you. Go ahead and let your kid watch it if you want. I probably wouldn't mostly because my wife would just be like, no, I don't want to watch that either. So we're done. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you you ask. Yeah, you ask really, you know, who the hell is this movie even for? You know, Um, yeah. I'm an English major. I've talked about that in the past. I have an associate's in visual communications as well. So I can tell you from what you're taught, you're always taught you have to you be super careful with the audience in mind. You got to keep them firmly in mind. You're, that's what you're taught. You're supposed to keep that in mind. But I actually kind of call bullshit a little bit on that. Um, <laughs> I do. When you're telling a story, I think art can be art regardless of whether the audience appreciates it. I, I think it's allowed to be a reflection of its creator it doesn't have to be something that other people 100% identify with. So mm-hmm. you, you're talking about this story. It, it, it touches on all these different tones and themes. And it's like, who is this person that it's intended for? I, I, first of all, I don't necessarily agree off the cuff that it's a kid's movie. I'm not sure it was ever intended to be explicitly a children's story. I'm not sure where that idea was, except that one of the main characters happens to be a child. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know the idea of why we think it's a children's story. I'm not that was it never came off to me that this was supposed to be a kid's story um, for when it comes to art though. Like if it's, if it was nothing and then it was spun into something like that's a creation. Okay. It can, it can exist irrespective of the audience. It, it, I don't think there, there is a target audience for Beetlejuice personally. Mm-hmm. I think all those dark themes, the deadly undertones, the Gothic threads in the comedy, the childish humor, even the social commentary, the little bit of social commentary they have there on like eighties yuppies. Like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's something there to make just about everybody uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. The consumerism and and everything behind it too. Oh yeah. Um, Definitely heavier tones. And that's what I was getting at. But yeah, I I think, and the reason I, I, I think 
it's more like a kid's movie is because people our age, you know, I was born in 87. And so people our age are like, oh, I love Beetlejuice. I watched it. I grew up watching it. And that goes back to what Tom was saying. It's like, you know, we're not going to parent. We're not going to be parents to people. But it's just fascinating to me that some people watch these movies as kids and then they'd love them for all their life. And I'm like, this is just a dark and weird movie. But, you know, you do you, I guess. Um, so, yeah, Eric, it's I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know who this movie's for. So I, I'm not sure it has to be for anybody. Ex- ex- is, is exactly. What I'm I think I think it's just Tim Burton wanting to do to do Tim Burton. And that's Tim Burton had a story he wanted to tell. And here we are. And that's, that's what and, I think. Yeah. And hopefully people watch it. Yeah. Well, I do think I do think it's worth noting, though, too. They did spin off a cartoon from this, just like the yeah. Ghostbusters, right? The real Ghostbusters <laughs> cartoon. And. It went on for a few seasons, um, and clearly animated cartoons are for children. Um, I mean, unless it's like adult animation, but that wasn't really a thing in the 80s or the early 90s, I would say. But having that for children, is that's why I'm leaning more for maybe this is what it was for. But then again, Batman, R- yeah, Rambo had a, a, a spinoff cartoon. <laughs> so did Robocop. Like, and Robocop is definitely not a kid's movie, <laughs> no. nor is Rambo. <laughs> So it's just like, it's crazy stuff. But I look at Pee Wee's Big Adventure, right? So Pee Wee Herman was a kid show also after that. Pee Wee's Funhouse was definitely a kid show. But but Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I would wager and say that is that is definitely not for kids. Um, kids can watch it, but they would miss a lot of the jokes. Um, but I, I love Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I mean, it was yeah. when I was growing up, right? But even that has some pretty vis- visually disturbing moments, like when Large Marge Mm. Uh, shows her face. I'm like, oh god, I hated it so much. Uh, but you know, it's that that is what it is. So I, I I like the idea that Tim Burton had the kind of autonomy to do whatever he wanted to, and he's just like, I'm just going to make a movie to make a movie, and it doesn't need to be lumped into one category. It's all the story. Like it, I like it a lot. <laughs> Stories are are great. That's what we that's what we are here for. So we were talking about uh, Michael Keaton before this. Uh, I saw The Flash today. I won't spoil anything. I love Michael Keaton. I think he's fantastic. I loved him in Mr. Mom. I loved him in this movie. I love him in all the Batmans. Um, He's just great. Birdman was fantastic. But uh, his Beetlejuice is only in the movie for a total of 14 and a half minutes um, or about 15% of the movie. So why the heck is this movie named Beetlejuice? It's my biggest complaint. He barely has an effect on the movie, in my opinion, and it's just so odd to me. So why is it named after Beetlejuice? Some shit like that, and that makes my life a hell, okay? A living hell. But maybe do you have a pen? Maybe we can... Oh, I know. You didn't play charades. Yeah. Ah, good, good. Ah, uh, here we go then. Ready? Um, two words. Right. Ah. Uh, first word, two syllables. <laughs> you know. I don't know what your signal means. Turn around and look behind you. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Beetle. God, okay. Now, two, take one. Uh, breakfast, orange, orange beetle, uh, beetle fruit, beetle breakfast, uh, beetle drink, uh, beetle, uh, uh, beetle juice. Yes, that's it! Name's Beetlejuice? Ah, you said it twice. Just say it once more. Come on. It was you, wasn't it? <laughs> Me? The snake. No, what snake, you kids, in your imagination? Just 
say it. No. I want to talk to Barbara. No, you don't need to talk to Barbara. Just say it. Uh, yeah, I I think he's just like the glue of the movie. Um, I see him as like a like a Hannibal Lecter in it, where he's he's not in it a lot, but he's pushing the story forward. He's building the tension and has the comedy. Like most of the comedy comes from him. Like he's just being crazy, and, and I think that's why he's not the main character. But it'd be real boring if it was like two country bumpkins that are dead. <laughs> like that's, that's a terrible name for a movie. <laughs> so I, I think he's just the most entertaining character. Get that name up on the billboard. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll, I'll see. I think, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I get that. But I, he's, he isn't the most important character of the story, but he is essential to the arc of the story. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, but he's sort of like the forbidden solution. So I, I felt like I really wanted to stretch to answer this question. So you ready for this stretch? Please. You ready for this gym, this stretch? I like stretching. This, he, he's, he's the break glass in case of emergency guy. So, but you also need a way to like to rein him back in, except that you can't necessarily. Uh, he is the nuke. He's a nuke is what he is. It is it hard to rein in a nuke once you set it off. <laughs> it's only through just extraordinary effort and luck that they were, they were even able to do so with the worm coming down through the roof and all that. So I, so I think maybe for Burton, it's like Dr. Strange love or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. The, the bomb is a character in that movie, but like only incidentally in the film. Right. So, mm-hmm. but the entire plot surrounds it. It is dependent on it. So it's like, will they, won't they, should they No, they can't possibly except maybe. Oh shit. Here we go. And, <laughs> and that's just, that's another movie with incredibly dark themes interlaced with comedy. Right. And I promise you, Tim Burton saw that film and was influenced by it as a kid. He he just he had to have. So as much of a reach here, I think Beetlejuice is a nuke in this story. I think that's what he is. I could see that he's definitely a plot device, um, but he doesn't really come on until, you know, a good maybe third of the way through two thirds of the way through. And he just right. kind of like exists. Um, he does have funny moments for sure. Um, and he sits in the background to where it's like, you know, we can't say his name. You guys need to scare them uh, on your own. But yeah, he's that nuke. He's that shit. Well, we got to pull this rip quarter. We got to We got to detonate this. So that's why they decide. Lydia decides. Fine. I, I need his help. And then it's like, oh, shit. I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, no. Yeah. Should not have done that. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And it'll be interesting because they are making a Beetlejuice 2. It's in production. It'll be very interesting to see what will happen with Beetlejuice and if he is expanded upon more. I imagine his role will be bigger, which I'm cool with, uh, but I I have a problem with sequels that take that long uh, when there's a big enough gap, like 30, 40 years, and you have to try to sit and watch it. It it, it could fail miserably. It's going to be fascinating. Because apparently, uh, when they were originally kicking around the idea of a Beetlejuice sequel, they were talking about like Beetlejuice in Hawaii. <laughs> there was there was something about that that Tim Burton thought was hilarious. And he's just like, I want to go. I don't know. I kind of want to see what we can do with this. And then it's just never they never went through with it. So I don't know. I you don't know. I want to watch. I want to watch that movie. That see, sounds- that's what Tim's counting on. He's counting on guys like you and me. who are just like, <laughs> just this is like- the most ridiculous thing ever. We have to go see it. 
I can't wait. This is IPA ice cream. <laughs> it just right. sounds like a movie yeah. that is straight to VHS, like Beetlejuice goes to Hawaii or something. <laughs> like, God damn it. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. He, he really does do such a great job. And I, I, I love the fact that Michael Keaton loved this role so much because you can tell he's having fun. And when an actor is having fun in their respective role, I think that's what's great about it. I would like to see the world a little more, the the afterlife world explored on because, you know, the handbook for the recently deceased is is pretty cool. Um, and it's it's neat to, to figure out all these rules and making their own little John Wick universe, basically. Um, yes. So I'm a fan. I'm a fan of it. And it's it'll be interesting to see how they unshrink his head. I hope that they address that in the sequel, because that was a funny moment and it would just be neat to see it like unshrink and when, yeah. what he what he has to do for it. Right. So he's shrunk all this time. Yeah. Uh, Tom, kind of back to what you were saying, though, too. I mean, my counter to what you used the Silence of the Lambs argument with Hannibal Lecter. I mean, but that movie wasn't called Hannibal Lecter. The sequel was, but it was called The Silence of the Lambs. And I think for this one, I'm like, why can't they call it like spirited shenanigans or or ghosts in the house or something like that? I know it doesn't (laughs) sound good now, but I'm saying it just would be interesting and you could just say, Hey, the best part of ghosts in the house was Beetlejuice. Um, Cause who, who with any art form or any film in general, how do you know that that's going to stick? What if people were like, this movie's terrible and Beetlejuice was great, but like, you know, it didn't really have an effect on the, on the movie that it was named after him. Yeah. What if people were like, I love Beetlejuice, but why wasn't he in the movie Beetlejuice more? Which I, I, I mean, it makes sense. He should be in it a lot more, but I don't think, that, that's why I'm not sure about the sequel is I don't know if a movie focusing on Beetlejuice would be as good. Like that seems like a movie that would, because that's like too much of him would just get kind of stale after a while. He's just doing his, ah, I'm Beetlejuice after a <laughs> while. That's just going to be like, okay, we get it. You're a bad dead person. Like ghost of the for, most. Like, I, I feel like that would get really boring. There has to be, like, secondary characters. And I don't even think secondary. I think there should be a, a focus that isn't Beetlejuice. He is better as a secondary character. Then again, I have nothing to base this off of. He's only been a secondary character. <laughs> you know, it was really a really good balance uh, for how to basically have your main character who the movie is named after, but make sure that he is like a co-star in it and not the the main star is Mad Max Fury Road because that movie is named after Mad Max, but he has Tom Hardy has like 12 lines in the whole movie. And while he's important, he's an ancillary character. And so it's like Furiosa is the one that it's her movie. And I will argue that tooth and nail, like she's incredible in it, right? It is her movie and it is the, the wives movie. Um, He just is that, part that's kind of in it and in this it's different though because it's like Beetlejuice who's a side character but we're gonna name the movie after him uh, and I just I don't know I for some reason it just rubbed me the wrong way when I watched it and I also was just already at the point where I'm like I don't really like this movie it's not <laughs> it's not my favorite so that wasn't really fair um, but I'm just kind of nitpicking at, at things here and there so I'm, I'm sure you guys you guys are fine with the title it's it's iconic now but yeah, that's the thing is it, that's just what it is. Like, why are you questioning it? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't be crazy. Um, so I, I the reason I love this podcast and, and just love talking about film is because I believe that you can draw meaning from from movies like any any movie ever you could draw meaning from. 
art, like I have discussed on this show time and time again, is incredibly easy to analyze. So first, you need to describe what you are seeing, just what you see, the colors, the shapes, the representation, what's going on. And then second, you ask why. You ask why the director or the creators made the choices they did. You question to the, you question the things you see and why they're there, and then you challenge that description. It's very, very simple. So you describe and you ask why. With that being said, what is the meaning of Beetlejuice to each of you? Yeah, so in the same vein that I don't think it's absolutely necessary to care what the audience wants when you're creating a story, uh, I also don't think it's an essential ingredient to have meaning, and I don't necessarily think meaning is an essential ingredient. I think that's something that we put into it, so like you're just asking, like, what do I take out of it? I, I didn't take a whole lot of meaning from Beetlejuice, <laughs> except maybe that possibly that death is inevitable, uh, but life goes on. <laughs> and that's sort of a, a, a weird thing about our existence. And that also that death doesn't solve problems. Let's explore that a little more because, because you're right on. So, and I agree with you, like sometimes, you know, things don't need to have meaning, but it's just fun to, for us to be subjective about art and just to look at it and, right. and take, draw some meaning. Cause I think it enhances, you know, films and that's what I just love yeah. to do. So it does that. It does that with art. Yeah. Like yeah. Look, at, look at like a Van Gogh, like yes. Van Gogh painting, like a uh, painting, the sunflowers was the example that comes to my mind. Like, it's just this beautiful portrait of these vase of sunflowers and all these wonderful yellow and bright colors. And it's like, it's just a painting of sunflowers. That's just, did he have a whole lot of meaning to it when he created it? Or was it just like what his, as he's struggling through his mental illness and, and through his depression that he latched onto that, what beauty in the world that was around him. And he captured that in those meticulous brushstrokes for all time. Mm -hmm. Like, was there meaning there intended by the artist or did the artist create what his tortured mind screamed to him to create? And we're the ones assigning meaning to it. You know what I mean? So we're the ones adding value here. It evokes emotion and it evokes a, a response that your response of looking at those sunflowers is going to be different than my response, right? So I'm going to feel a certain way and you're going to feel a certain way. But I do like what you're saying here about death in the afterlife and its inevitability where you know, let's, let's just, I'm just, just talking right now at this point. Um, yeah. Lydia is a person who thinks that she's strange. She knows she's strange and she's different, vastly different from her father and her stepmother. And she would rather, you know, in a very kind of morose way, rather be dead than, than to live on this earth. And it's, it's interesting because she's a child. So mm -hmm. we have the couple, the, the Maitlands who were married, didn't have children, which was a point in it, you know, at the start, that's what we see. Not sure if they necessarily wanted children, but they were at a point when they just wanted to live their best lives. And then you have this girl who just wants to give up on life. And I think that's interesting because it's like death is is inevitable for everybody. That's like one of the the harsh realities and, and the, the only 100% factual things, right, is, is that death is inevitable for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so maybe slowing down or speeding up certain things of your life and realizing that we're going to get to that point. So why don't we just enjoy what we have and uh, the things around us? Um I don't know. That's that's just one take. Maybe I'm, I'm spitballing right now. I'm, I'm there because if you saw we saw early on where the main, I think it was their Maitland's, Maitland's, their last yeah. Maitland's yeah. they were saying like, he's honey, we're dead. I don't think anything really matters anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you saw Lydia was trying, you know, she wanted to die. And by the end of the movie, they had sort of found solace in their weird little family together. Yeah. And I think part of the 
thing I took from that is like it's it's a reminder that death doesn't actually mean necessarily mean the end of your problems. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 the whole world keeps on trucking and everything keeps moving. So Yeah, I like that. See, that's good. Beetlejuice is a deep movie. There you go. <laughs> I, I compare it to Van Gogh. Tom. There you go. <laughs> well, what I took away was acceptance. Acceptance of change, acceptance of death, I guess it could be in there mm. too. And just sometimes you don't need to fight so hard against certain things. Like sometimes you got to accept life's going to change. Like things are going to happen. They were fighting so hard to get these people out of their house. And just they just made things worse and worse and worse until they finally accepted, like, is it really all that bad? Like, we're dead people in a house. Does it really matter if they're remodeling this place? It's not going to be the end of the world. The world already ended. We're dead, first of all. <laughs> but that's that's what I took was acceptance. You got, They're accepting finally at the end where it's just like, hey, we don't have to keep fighting so much. Like, let's just do our thing. Yeah, I like that. And and because, you know, they're making the choice to accept that, I think that's a really important aspect, the power of choice, the power of being like, I'm going to acquiesce because I'm in a situation, I'm going to be here for 125 years and sure, I can scare them away, but then it's just, it's going to be cyclical and another family is going to come in and I'm going to have to scare them away. So why not make the best of the situation you have right now? And there you go. They get to work on their model stuff and be friends with Lydia who can see them, but also live copacetically with the, the Dietzes. Well, you know, the Charles, all he wanted to do was drink tea and live in solace. And all that uh, the mom, the mom wanted to do was sculpt. And she does. And she gets inspiration from Beetlejuice, basically. Yeah, I felt like Lydia's dad and Mr. Maitland would have got along just fine. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah they, he didn't want to change anything. He liked the house as is. Yeah. He just wanted to drink tea and chill and unwind a little bit because he had a bit of a break, you know, a mental breakdown. So, yeah, I think, I think we can it, all. Yeah, the stepmom, the stepmom, <laughs> who wanted, you know, the yuppie. She, but she was great, too. And she even settled down at the end, obviously, um, because she went through that traumatic experience, but was like, OK, now I have inspiration for different styles of art and it'll it'll go with with my experience. But so the meaning I drew from this was the the uh, importance and power of family and friendship. And I'm underlining friendship most importantly, because we've talked about this time and time again on this and the uh, top five podcast. Uh, you don't get to pick your family. So your chosen family is, is also equally or sometimes more important than your blood family. And so I think that the power of family and friendship is uh, is one of those really, really strong bonds. And I think that Beetlejuice actually represents cynicism and pessimism. Uh, Beetlejuice is that chaos factor. Beetlejuice is that person that doesn't give a shit about anything. A very last resort type of, uh, you know, nuclear option that you would have. But in reality, if you just kind of tone down a, a little bit and realize everything around you, you'll understand that the friends that you have uh, are your family. Um, and you got to You got to make a home a home. That's what they end up doing. And. And uh, even Lydia, who didn't want to be there, who thought she was an outsider and so weird, found her people. She found her friendship and her family. And and I loved it. I thought that that was really cool um, in this movie. And I think it was one of the more important things I drew from this movie. Yeah, found family. It was definitely. Uh, yeah, I. you're right. That, that theme was sort of interlaced from the very beginning when you saw Lydia with her stepmom and that stepmom theme is, oh, you know. That's all kinds of different movies touch on that. And then, you know, parents divorce and then they remarry and you're sort of putting a 
Franken family together, as it were, <laughs> if that fits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's insulting, but it's sort of how, I don't know. That's just where my mind went when I'm thinking Tim Burton. Franken mm-hmm. family. That's, that's a term for it. I feel like Lydia would say something like that, you know, or when, or Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I'm looking at like to, you know, I think this might have been Tom who said it, but uh, basically like the acceptance. So one of the other uh, themes that I drew was the consequences of seeking quick fixes and just making deals without considering negative outcomes. So the Maitlands were like, we're just going to use Beetlejuice because we can't get this done. And it's like, well, hang on a second, pump those brakes, figure out what's going on. And there you go. Um, same thing with the Dietzes. They were so quick to change everything around before maybe seeing the beauty of what the house actually was right from the get-go. Her and Otho, Delia and Otho walk through and they're just spray painting all the walls. They're like, oh, so ugly. But maybe maybe we sit back a little bit and let things kind of marinate before we, we jump to those conclusions. Um, but that also goes into consumerism too. There was that, I think, the theme of consumerism, like Eric was seeing the yuppies, um, you know, taking that and basically saying, do we need all this stuff versus can we just live in this quaint world? Because they're coming to this quaint town of White White Creek or whatever it's called. They're coming Winter Creek. They're coming here to basically then develop it into something else. And it's like they're going to ruin the beauty of this small town. And and that can be really harmful as well. So, yeah. Just a few things I thought of. But um, gentlemen, that those are all the questions I actually have for Beetlejuice. Uh, it's just one of those movies, you know. It was it was weird. Um, <laughs> that's all <laughs> I really say. Yeah. yeah, but and and I don't I don't want to poo poo it completely. But <clears throat> we'll we'll save our letter grades for a second because I do want to jump into the hottest takes. So I want uh, both of you to defend uh, one of your most controversial or hottest takes on this movie, on movies of this genre, on this era, on this decade. Uh, actors, whatever you may choose. So how about we start with Eric? Okay. Uh, you already mentioned a, a little bit how the afterlife didn't really make a whole lot of sense and you wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit more with the upcoming sequel. I actually love that it doesn't make any sense. And I love <laughs> that he spent no time like a stab doing any exposition whatsoever to explain it. Cause I feel like directors i feel like writers they get carried away with the exposition they feel like they need to justify absolutely every single thing that they're doing as they're telling the story and it's like you got to trust the audience a little bit to suspend their disbelief and kind of come along with you on some of these stories so i like i get that thematically ghosts can for the purposes of this like thematically ghosts can get attached to a place and that's why they fail to cross over and like that's something that that's established canon for ghosts mm-hmm. like you know, we know that already. He doesn't have to turn around and re-explain that all over again. We know that. So he respects the audience enough to just go with it from there. Um, I I really appreciate that. I even the characters in the story, like they can't make heads or tails of it. And that's and and that's my real hot take is that like the story just just like real life, the story doesn't have any obligation to make sense to you. Mm-hmm. It's up to you to go find it if you want, but it it doesn't have to make sense. Burton feels no obligation to make it make sense for the audience. And I personally love that. I, it's a silly ghost story. It doesn't need to be more than that. Um, it's So have you ever seen Epic Rap Battles of History? Do you ever watch that on YouTube yeah. at all? Yeah. Okay. I There's one on there. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's George R.R. R. Martin versus J.R.R. R. Tolkien. <laughs> and we've talked about this before. It's so good. It's Go watch it right now. But there's a line in there 
from Martin to Tolkien that stuck with me for a long time says, you went too deep, Professor Tweed Pants. We don't need the backstory on every fucking tree branch. Like, <laughs> we love Tolkien. Yeah. Right? We love Tolkien. We love Lord of the Rings. We appreciate the depths of the world building. But like, good, come on. Not every story needs that. Like, I not. I, I, and I, was, I said this actually about Christmas Vacation. I think one of the last times we were on here. But it's like, not every movie has to be Casablanca. Yeah. Not everything has to be Citizen Kane. Sometimes a silly ghost story can just be a fun silly ghost story i mean the interior decorator also happens to be a peddler of arcane knowledge <laughs> why be- because why not like why not because yeah. that's why why not literally why not so anyway i dig it and you know opening the door and then they get transported to this sand world i'm like the fuck like watching that i'm like where is this and how did they just get transported here it doesn't make sense but i but i think that that's again the point it doesn't have to make sense you you need to know that the maitlands are dead they're trying to scare out this family that's the plot um and the rest is just it's just again ancillary it's just stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think should be there but it's necessary to the story and and it's cool because you don't really need an answer like tim burton is like i'm not i'm gonna be unapologetic with this so okay i like it i I can get down with that 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 improves it a little bit for me good thomas uh my hot take kind of goes back to the uh Beetlejuice being a nuclear bomb sort of situation. And I don't think Beetlejuice is the villain of the story. I think he's just the embodiment of taking the easy way out. Like there, there is literally a commercial where he is a used car salesman. Something we all know is something untrustworthy. (laughs) And then you are told multiple times, do not summon Beetlejuice. And it's just like, you know what he is. He's not the villain because we know what he is. He's going to do terrible things. I don't think anyone's really the villain. They're just all trying to get out of this the easiest way possible, not put in the work. They need to put in the work, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, a good point. Who yeah. is the villain of this movie? I'm not sure there is one. Be- because the two dead people aren't, like, they died. Like, they're just in their house for the next, what, 125 years or whatever it Again, was. Again, why? Because like, why? Because, yeah, why? Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> and then the Deets, it's not, they bought a house and they're remodeling it. Like, it's not mm-hmm. their fault that it belonged to some ghosts. Like, and then Beetlejuice He's just Beetlejuice. That's what he is. Like everyone in the afterlife knows that's what Beetlejuice is. So you can't get mad when Beetlejuice does Beetlejuice things. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Yeah, it's he he's as advertised. You're like, that guy looks like an <laughs> like, asshole. Guess what? He's an <laughs> asshole. And, and you can't really be surprised by that decision. You know, like, are these peppers going to be hot when I eat them? Well, <laughs> they were hot last week when you ate them. So they're probably going to be hot again. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's see what happens. Uh, oh no, it's so hot! Damn it. <laughs> he, yeah, I guess he is probably quite authentic, um, yeah. and that that does make sense. And even when Lydia, Lydia didn't really know him, right? But she was just trying to save the Maitlands. She didn't realize he was going to make a deal and, and you know try to screw them over, basically, because she's like, help them, and he kind of does, but he also kind of like stops them from. Even alive. she was told not to summon him because they yeah. come back with their faces all messed up and stop her and tell her, nah, no Beetlejuice. No and Beetlejuice. she still goes for Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah. Stop doing it the easy way, guys. You know, in desperation, we fire off the nukes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, um, just, it's just accept your fate or fire off the nuke. That's there it is. Do you accept the fate or do you fire off the nuke? What do you do? 
The nuke's going to kill a lot more people. <laughs> play, play, I'm play saying. <laughs> I mean, this is also at the end of the Cold War, where it's just like, yeah, what do you what do you do? Like, you know, if 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 it's really you could stick with conventional warfare all the way to the very end. But when defeat is inevitable, do you fire off that nuke or do you just accept your fate? Hit that damn button. <laughs> you sh- you should accept your fate, but I don't think anyone would. <laughs> she hit the button, didn't she? Yeah. She did. There you go. Yeah. She was uh, in crisis mode and she's like, I just got to do this. This is the only thing I know what to do. Don't stop Otho. Just get Beetlejuice there. Go hit Otho with like a frying pan or something like that. It's that simple. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't really have that a great hot take, but I, I, I was a little confused when the car crashed into the water. I'm like, well, that wasn't very high up and that's not really deep. I'm like, they're dead. <laughs> so yeah. I think they I think they might have been under the influence of something. And that's what killed them. Like, no one's that happy. But yeah, <laughs> it, it was it was interesting to see them dead. I'm like, huh? OK, but, you know, that's why I, I guess I didn't really get it. I was I was thinking it would be more of a definitive. They're definitely dead. But maybe that was part of the point, too, is because it's kind of a fake out when they show them in the house. You're like, oh, sweet. Yeah, they're fine. Right. You know, they're not even wet, um, but they don't they don't have reflections and then they have the manual for the for the dead. And you're yeah. like, oh, OK, that makes a little more sense. But I was like, well, that wasn't that great of a way to go out. Fucking dog. I mean, I would have swerved, too, but yeah. But dog and then falling into maybe the river or whatever was underneath was real shallow. So when they fell, they like. I don't know, died from or got knocked out from the impact and then drowned. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe they were both allergic to water and it like they had an uh, allergic reaction and it actually killed them. I would be terrified going over that bridge every day. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact, uh, one of the actual one of the rules that Tim Burton actually said was uh, everybody who's dead, um, you know, shows up how they died, basically. So like there was a guy with a mm. chicken bone stuck in his throat and he had a, he had a chicken bib and that was funny. But um, the Maitlands were supposed to be soaking wet because they drowned, but he didn't want to make them wear wet clothes the entire movie because that would have just been <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable. So they were dry. I thought that was a little interesting, uh, but, you know, that's I, I get it. it. It makes more sense and you can add a little more fake out in there, too. Um, I love Gina Davis. I think she's fantastic. So she was she was mm-hmm. awesome in this movie. Alec Baldwin's good, but he's just he's Alec Baldwin. Sure. So, and there were there's some really iconic moments from this movie too. Like the Deo scene is always so good at dinner, right? When those giant prawns come up and grab their faces, that Pretty scary is, shit. <laughs> that's the iconic scene, dude. Yeah, yeah. it's it's scary shit, <laughs> <laughs> and it makes that sound too. And just I don't know. But guys, what are your letter grades uh, for this movie, Tom? What do you what do you give Beetlejuice? I give Beetlejuice a B plus. Uh, I think it's one of Tim Burton's better movies. Uh, trying to think like the two Batmans and Big Fish. What else? Maybe Pee Wee is probably close to better or somewhere right around it. So it, it's one of his like top five to seven movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to say a minus. Uh, it's a comedy horror. How many movies? I love the idea of the genre alone, like comedy horror. I love that. How many of those are there out there? Would you say fit the comedy horror theme? That's a great uh, question. That Let might be look. just about one of the very few, right? So graded on a curve, it might just be uh, best in class. Yeah. He, the he, Evil Dead, like Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2. Okay. Gremlins. <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, Ghostbusters could technically be considered comedy horror because there's some Probably. pretty scary shit in there too. Mars Attacks, yeah. another movie that he did. Uh, this is the end. 
That's one of them. Renfield, which is new. I don't know if that one's very good or not. So you uh, know, it's, it's, it's fine. I watched it. It's on uh, uh, Peacock. So Beetlejuice, it, it's well-paced, compelling characters, good dialogue that drives the story. Its visuals are a little bit dated, mm-hmm. uh, and they were a little bit at the time as well, but that's part of the low budget. I actually think it fits the overall aesthetic, so it works out. It still holds up uh, fairly well, I think. And um, uh, so I give it a, I give it an A-, minus, and I, I found the blip, what they were talking about. Uh, Beetlejuice in Hawaii. So Tim apparently thought it would be funny matching the surfing backdrop of a beach movie with some sort of German expressionism because they just totally <laughs> don't fit together at all. So the story awesome. apparently was that they were going to it was going to follow the Dietz family moving to Hawaii, uh, where Charles is developing a resort. And then they soon discover that his company is building the burial ground of an ancient Hawaiian kahuna. So the spirit comes back from the afterlife to cause trouble and Beetlejuice becomes a hero by winning a surf contest with magic. God damn it. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Let that be Beetlejuice too. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'll, I'll wait till it's available streaming. <laughs> I, I am just picturing Michael Keaton on a surfboard saying Cowabunga as Beetlejuice. And it's just like, yes, this is what our lives have got to. And we can now end the earth. We're well, done. Well, I guess Michael Keaton and Winona Ryder said yes. They were on board. Yeah. They're, si- they're already but, signed on. Yeah. Uh, Jenna Ortega, well, no, Winona saying- Ryder. Oh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I would say originally to that, they they had said yes oh. back in like in 1990. Oh wow! But they, they were but, like, yes, yes, we want a vacation to Hawaii. Is <laughs> wow. what they but, said. But but they were making <laughs> Keaton and Burton were making Batman at the time, yeah. so they were mm. like they were sort of distracted and kind of uh, it sort of fell by the wayside as they were moving on to Batman Returns and they had to, that whole thing. He his Batman Batman took over the 90s for him for a lot, and so did Nightmare and a few other things. So he just like. So it fell to the wayside. But yeah, Bat- uh, Beetlejuice 2 is going to have, let's see, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Catherine Harris coming back. Uh, Jenna, Jenna Ortega is going to be in it. Mm-hmm. Justin Theroux, Monica Bellucci, and Willem Dafoe. So, interesting. You're sleeping? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's going to be great. Interesting how they don't the cast- have Gina, da- Gina Davis or Alec Baldwin. The cast alone is great. I mean, that's that's why I think it'll draw in. I mean, sure, I'll see it. But again, yeah, I'm probably going to wait till it's streaming. <laughs> I, I'm not going to rush out to theaters to see it or anything. Uh, it's, you know, so this movie, it's a C minus for me. Um, I'm kind of up there with the IMDb a little bit under there. It's about a 72% for me. I I just didn't like it as much. You know, I'm not upset that I watched it, but it's kind of one of those, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to watch it anytime soon. Uh, I, I had seen it before, but I didn't remember a good 50% of the film. I So I was thankful I could like re-watch it for that aspect. But yeah, it, uh, it really didn't hit me. And I think I, I was explaining to you guys quite a bit throughout the show that, yeah, I, I wasn't really feeling the movie that much. But that's okay, because they're all not going to be, you know, the Dark Knights. And this is far from the Dark Knight. Well, Pretty far great from news, it. it's only an hour and a half. It flew by. Yes. <laughs> and that's that I'm very thankful for. I think that's a, a really good uh, ask that it's only an hour and a half. But um, OK, well, guys, that's all I have to say about Beetlejuice. Uh, Tom, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Tom Top 5. That's T-H-O-M for Tom. Oh, Tom Top 5. Eric, what about you? I'm at Snack Burglar there on the Twitter, on the tweets land. That's where you'll mostly find me on there. He loves the snacks. I do. Snack burglar and forget about it. 
Bergelin spaghetti sandwiches. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, guys, thanks so much for joining. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely do it again, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you have my contact information. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll keep in touch, I'm sure, on a weekly basis. <laughs> you bet. Um, okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at DBCrazyPod and at ZachDale60, where you can share your thoughts, give us film suggestions, and tell us if we're crazy or just send funny memes. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and leave us a five-star review if you like it. Additionally, we're also available on every other major podcast app. Thank you for listening, and until next time, don't be crazy.